Well, you got to speak truth to power. You got to inform, enlighten, and educate people around the issues that exist in the context that you understand them and your perspective on them. Because you will always, you can always be challenged on you, you know, what you have to say. So you have, at least have have a basic understanding to be able to communicate that clearly. Episode eighty six with the former Minister of Culture to the Black Panther Party, Emory Douglas. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of Black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today, we embark on a profound journey with the iconic Emory Douglas. As the former Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party, Emory's art ignited a revolution. Today, we ask you to reorient your ears. This is history. There's an old African proverb that states that when a person transitions, a library burns to the ground. Well, today's conversation with Emory Douglas is a living archive revealing itself. It's what we here at the Institute call archival intelligence. So take notes, research the names, refer back. Today's conversation is a retelling of art making and revolutionary times and what it means to co-create new identities within a community. With his signature bold lines, collaging techniques, and technical skills honed at the City College of San Francisco, Emory Douglas, along with Black Panther Party founders Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, set out to design not just any old newspaper, but one that spoke to the people, their people, and met them where they are, keenly aware that their community learned from observation and participation more than reading, per se, Emory crafted oversized tabloids filled with large captions and images that situated an oppressed class in a space of dignity and uplift. And as much as this interview is a historical retelling of the architectural framework of the Black Panther Party, it also encapsulates the emergence of the Black consciousness movement, the Black arts movement, and the global breaking off of colonial shackles as the right for self-determination and its offspring, self-expression, took hold. Emory also reflects on the haunting continuity of surveillance from the quote-unquote social workers who kept a watchful eye on the spending habits of his mother, who was on welfare, to the ubiquitous levels of surveillance that exist in contemporary culture, making us all subjects of the state. Join us in this safe space as Emory candidly shares tales of rebellion, societal exchanges, and the intricate web of connections in his formative years. This episode is not just an interview, it's a voyage through the corridors of time, shedding light on the profound interplay of art, activism, and the Black experience. And to hear another side of this story, be sure to check out episode 26 with Elaine Brown, the only woman to serve as chair of the Black Panther Party. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Be sure to share them with us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And this and more content is also over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. 
And if you want to know more about what we're up to over here at the Institute, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. It's a monthly dose of inspiration in your inbox. The link is down in the show notes. And now join us as Emery Douglas navigates through the intersections of art, activism, and the enduring quest for justice. Okay, amazing. We are ready to go. Brother Emery Douglas, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. All power to the people. All power to the people. And thank you for the invitation. Much appreciated. Of course, it is a joy to have you here and a dream and an honor. Um, so to get started, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Well, I, I would like to dedicate uh, the conversation to is the to all those who were my comrades in in the uh, in in on on my journey through social justice, and particularly the Black Panther Party and the Black Arts Movement. Okay, amazing. Here's to the comrades left and right, uh, front and center, uh, from the Black Panther Party and those beyond, and those who are still doing the fight. Yes. Um, so you've had an incredible career, this we know, but into today, like 2023, what's exciting you right now? Well, um, um, exciting me right now is... Uh, more of concerns about uh, in in the context of uh, uh, our survival, in the context of the planet's survival, in the context of global warming, the issues that we have, wars of mass destruction, all of these dynamics that exist today. Uh, at the same time, there's still the compassion, the respect, the love that takes place within that, you know, because it's, you know, there's the pendulum is always swinging between those two elements as well, you know, in many ways. Yeah. So uh, I would say that, and you have the, uh, you have more access to using the technology in a creative way uh, that you didn't have uh, many years ago. Uh, but of course, uh, that can always be shut off, cut off, because we don't have control of it in, in that context. Yeah, and I mean, it begs me to ask the question, you know, especially with your history and background, in a time like this, right, you know, and just to locate, you know, our listeners whenever they listen to this, um, you know, last week, there was a major airstrike in Israel um, from Hamas, and then, of course, you know, Israel is retaliating, Um we're also dealing with a host of things happening around yes. the world. And then, you know, anti-Jewish um, sentiments even happening here in the U.S. We are here before an election season. Um, what, what role does the artist play in a time like this? Well, you got to speak truth to power. You got to inform, enlighten, and educate people around the issues that exists in the context that you understand them and your perspective on them. Because you will always, you can always be challenged on you, you know, what you have to say. So you have, at least have, have a basic understanding to be able to communicate that clearly. Mm -hmm. and, and where does one find the courage, right? Because, you know, in many times, like 
you know, the environment we find ourselves now, you are surrounded by people who are acting and reacting out of like really deep-seated emotion, you know, and identity. So to speak truth to power requires a certain level of courage as well. Like where where does one find that? Well, you know, that's the historical context. You, you know, you could say it comes from being around people who had insight and commitment and put you under their wings and shared that with you and you became inspired, inspired by that itself. Uh, particularly when you talk about Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and little Bobby Hutton, that first member and that first group collective, that could have been wiped off the map before it got off the ground. So that was courage. And that you've seen that courage. You, you saw it, seen it being there, observing it, contributing and learning from it, even through the fears that you may have had, myself, you know, those limitations. So you, so you grow, you become committed. It's a, it's, a, it's a process. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not, uh, you don't have, you're not concerned. It doesn't mean you don't have fear. <laughs> it means that you have a commitment, regardless of that. Yeah, I, I can't wait to double tap on, you know, the ways in which you found your courage, you know, through the Black Panther Party. But, you know, in listening, it sounds like, you know, you're saying that so much of it is rooted in community. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because it's how the community responds to whatever it is. The cultural aspect, the political aspect of it, it knows that you're you're doing something bigger than yourself because you're dealing with their quality of life issues. You're dealing with those reflected in whatever it is, arts that you are involved in. Mm-hmm. And then you also said something that I thought was really beautiful was that that this also seems that like it's a practice, right? This isn't like a one-off, like I got it. It's like, no, I am I I recognize my fear, but I will continue to, you know, chip away at it, tell myself a different story as I pursue this goal that is larger than myself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can be under a lot of external pressures, as one may know in historical <laughs> context, you know, coin temple, counterintelligence program. To destroy and discredit the organization by any means necessary. That still still exists today in the, in the context of uh, speaking the truth to power in many ways. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, we have so much to cover. Um, but you have this. I want to start with this quote um, that you had in uh, Zapantera Negra, um, which was an artistic encounter between the Black Panthers and the. Zapistas. Zapatista. Zapatistas. Zapatistas. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, but you say what people are looking for is humanism. Human is a better word than any ism. It's about being human and treating each other with respect. With respect, there's the possibility of doing something that betters the quality of life for everyone. But now it's about exploitation and corporate greed. It has nothing to do with just everyday folk. But I want to rewind to that first line. What people are looking for is humanism. Human is a better word than any ism. Could you unpack the ways in which humanism has guided your career and the way you express it in the actual typographic and graphic design world? Well, humanism is something that you 
grow and you develop, uh, or, or you may have experience in connection with family, or loved ones, or those who are uh, extended family, or people you know, and you've seen those qualities, and they, and you develop them yourself and understand them in a, in that context, you know. Uh, but also is to uh, you, 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 you humanizing the individuals in the work itself, the culture work, the identity of the artwork itself. You, you, you know, because you humanize it by putting them on the stage, making them heroes in the art. And they're seeing their aunties and their uncles and their, and their friend, family and friends, and they see in the artwork. Thus, they become uh, the heroes on the stage in the artwork itself. It becomes something that they come to take ownership of because it's they know it's them, but therefore they become maybe more aware of that issue or of the concerns that may be reflected in the in the individual art or, or being communicated as a language because art is a language, you know. Yeah, it's the way you communicate visually. And so let's let's actually take a step back. Like take us back to young Emory. Like I know you moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. I think around the age of seven. Yes, yeah, around seven. Yeah, because nineteen fifty one, born nineteen forty three. So yeah, uh, uh, around seven years of age. Yes, uh-huh. which is a really great time to move because you're kind of aware, a little bit more aware of like your surroundings and the way things change. Um, We moved actually when I was five to a different neighborhood as well. But for you, you know, thinking back to being seven years old, what was that encounter like? And what was that space that you were inhabiting there in San Francisco in the 1950s? Just paint that picture for us. Well, when coming to San Francisco, the latest foundation is that I had asthma as a youngster. Uh, the doctor thought the weather would be better in San Francisco because my mother had a sister who lived here, and she also had an extended family sister who also lived here. And so uh, it was suggested that we come here because of the a- asthma. And But eventually I outgrew it as I got older. But San Francisco, uh, as a youngster, was just like a, many other places, a lot of racism. That existed in here, just like any place else. As a, as you evolve and grow, you know, uh, you know. Uh, I, I, I recall, you know, we, we lived in um, in the in, in on on the in the alley streets or the narrow streets when we first came here. Uh, uh, besides staying at my auntie's house, who lived in the public housing projects, uh, the narrow streets were less expensive. So therefore, you, you, your rent wasn't as high. Now they're more gentrified, as you can see today, than they were then. But what happened? We didn't. Uh, my mother was on welfare because she was a single parent, and you know she had a boyfriend or what have you. But she was on welfare. So when the people, when the state came by, he had to leave. <laughs> you know, when the state came, when they wanted to come by, they just check into your house. Check her closet, check her drawers to see if she had anything above the budget, uh, what have you. And if it was, they they could take her off welfare. Yeah, so you had those those times. They could have, they could just come by at any time. They want they had times when they were supposed to come by, and you you got everything straight. But there were times when they could just come on by. You know, yeah. The social workers, whatever you, if you if for a better word, yeah. 
So you had that, you had that back then, you know, yeah. Yeah, if you had, and they could ask about the clothes, if you had too many clothes, if you had a t- you didn't have a TV then, you know, but if you had something that they thought was too expensive, how did you get this? Why, what you have this for, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing this and I'm seeing this and I'm, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, about a young Emory witnessing this. Mm-hmm. Right, and the yeah. ways in which this mm-hmm. kind of invasion of privacy. Yeah. But see, now, with the context you look at today is a new world, another world. Because you say as much as things change, some things stay the same. How are you they say, the same? Yeah. But at the, but in a context, you, you look at it and you say, how could that be in the context of visualizing in today's world in which we look at ourselves to be transcended Beyond that, in many ways, and, and uh, but that's was that was a part of the battle or to overcome, yeah, yeah. And you know, kind of w- w- sl- taking a slight tangent here, but like kind of looking at the world through that lens, right? That the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In what ways does that type of surveillance? How is that being replicated in today? That in ways perhaps that we don't see because it's just been so normalized. Well, uh, I, that's a good question, <laughs> which I had never given thought to it in that context. <laughs> but uh, when when you think about it, in, in, in today's world, you look, you know, man, you got, we're right here communicating now, you know, but somebody else is listening to us, more likely, you know, uh, anytime we're on our computer sometimes, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You 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 know all over New York, you, you got surveillance going on, yeah, yeah. So, facial res- facial recognition technology, yeah, yeah iris yeah. scans at the yeah. airports, yeah. right? Like yeah. you know yeah. the ways in which we, yeah. you know, in many ways we can extrapolate this idea of you know mm-hmm. this exchange, right? Like mm-hmm. you speak about you know for the for the ability to have you know, be on welfare, there was an exchange, right? What you were exchanging was your privacy, right? Yes. So that there, there is this constant You were a subject. You were still a subject. Like mm-hmm. you was, you were, a, that was, you could have said you were a modern day slave in that con- in that time. You, you know, yeah. You were, yeah. You were, yeah. And I'm thinking about how And they that, weren't allowed to have a car. Oh. You can have a car. You can have none of that. Yeah. You can, you can have none of that. Yeah. The basic minimums was, yeah. That's that's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna move on, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's interesting to think about this idea of, you know, what what one sacrifices um, in exchange for, right? And you know, it looks like from this perspective that there was an agreement, or from the state essentially, it's like. We'll pay you to keep you down, right? We'll we'll pay you actually to to keep you at a certain level, yes, right? And we will monitor Absolutely. that mm-hmm. you don't progress actually, and that mm-hmm. you stay exactly at the level that we deem necessary, or then we withdraw, right? Very very interesting, but you know, as you began to go to school and you know pursue this type of art, what what was happening? I think you. Weren't, wasn't there a little bit of time like in a juvenile detention center or? Yes, yes. So being mm-hmm. bad, what, being bad what as was a youngster. Your, what, what were you up to? 
talk talk to us. This is a well, safe space. You can bad, tell us everything. You know, <laughs> but you know, my I grew up. My mom was legally blind when she uh, she had cataracts. Then she became re- legally blind when when we came after early on in San Francisco. And so then they had these uh, concession stands in the in the state where for the handicapped and those who were legally blind, where they had cigarettes, candy bar, all that kind of stuff that you see at your concession stand, where they were all in state, federal buildings, and what have you. And so when she was able to get a job, she was able to get a job at the juvenile detention center, working in the concession stand where the uh, pro- probation officers and the community would come in who were visiting loved ones, young who were incarcerated. And it was predominantly a lot of blacks who worked in the kitchens and stuff, right connected to where her business was, that where the probation of folks came in to eat. And so she knew a lot of all all of those all of those people and from the community. And she would she would uh, you know when they come in to handle money, she give let them feed let give them the food anyway, and they pay her later. All those kinds of things, yeah. But then I was usually, uh, as I got older, I began to know a lot of the guy, older guys who had been out there and they knew my mother and all have you, because they would see us in, in, the, in, in the neighborhood and they'd always speak to her and what I was with her, what have you, those kinds of things. So I started hanging out with some of the, that element as well. And uh, that's uh, because, you know, that was in the neighborhood at the same time. But then there was another group of young, young brothers and sisters that I knew. Who were who family who were more middle class, who had a home, a house, or what have you, and lived in a, a more secure area, uh, you could say. But they were almost so my friend. Because we all, in, in, regardless of the petty class differences, we all went to the same schools mostly and knew each other in that connection and and hung out, all, all, at, 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 you know, from time to time and had the cultural centers. And where we hung out and played and went to, uh, did all kinds of cultural stuff and went to the y, YMCA, other, other uh, uh, centers that, where they had a lot of performances and stuff took place in the context of that time. So that was the environment that I kind of grew up, started to growing up in. And, you know, at first, you know, I, I had the option. I could hang out over here. These young brothers is over here, his sisters, who were in and and thought thought of themselves as being the petty bourgeois, you could say, or these or the hood, or these youngsters and brothers and sisters over here who were out in the hood, you know, streetwise, you know, what have you, and, uh, and plus the older older guys out there, they used to watch out for me, you know, they had respect because of my mom, you know. But they didn't want me to hang out with them. But after a while, they seen I was gonna hang out out there. They, you know, <laughs> you know, they tried to watch out for me at the same time. Yeah. And so, you know, this is interesting. You know, this kind of laying the groundwork for what made Emory Douglas. Mm-hmm. When when did the art become a part of your? personality or the way in which you were like navigating the world that that introduction yeah yeah well you it was and when i was in the juvenile detention i used to draw a lot it wasn't nothing deal with uh any social justice concerns it was just copying abstract art mountains trees life maybe that was in many ways could have been culturally uh or political or becoming 
that you know, laying the foundation for it or what have you. But that's what it was. And so what happened is that uh, when I uh, came to a point, uh, got I think when I was about 19, uh, I was uh, going to go to City College of San Francisco. And it, when I was just having to come into the, uh, the, the my, where my mother was working at, at the juvenile, and one of the probation officers came through and said, you, sh- you should take up art, which I had planned to do when I went there. And when I went to City College to, to enroll, the, uh, sup- uh, the, uh, the, uh, the administrator said, well, you should take up commercial art. It's a, I could have took up fine art, then I may have been a, a, a fine artist, but I wouldn't have knew the production aspect of putting publications and things together. So that, lay, that was the foundation of my developing my skill. At the same time, this was the beginning of the black conscious movement in this country, where beginning to where, the, uh, speaking of black power, uh, you have at the city college, when I got there, uh, there was this uh, brother named Roland Young, who was a well-known jazz uh, DJ in San Francisco, who was coordinating some actions to take to change the name from the Negro Students Association to the Black Students Association. This was at the same time while I was in the Black Arts Movement at, as well, when Amiri Baraka had came out to, around to San Francisco State to doing props, and I used to go out there quite a bit because it was not that far from City College, about a 15-minute, 20-minute uh, uh, ride on the bus straight there. And I used to hang out there so much that people write articles that Emory Douglas went to San Francisco State. And that was where <laughs> I, had ex- I had to explain that I was, that's where all the cultural activity, that's when they were changing, changing it to et- start, trying to start ethnic studies. And they also were, um, uh, I think San Francisco State became the first or the second black student union in the country by name. You had others, different names, but they weren't black student unions. But they were in the same context, you could say. Uh, but uh, you could say BSU's, uh, it was either San Francisco, I believe, uh, State College, or Mississippi, I think, State was one of the first, one of, either one was the first in the country. And so I used to go out there quite a bit. But going back to City College of San Francisco, I got involved with Roland Young and changing the name, a lot of resistance uh, to that. From the from the administration in regards to now define who we are as still having the have defined the, co- the colonial name that we were subject we were given name we were given, uh, but being to able to define for ourselves and having that choice and that option, you know, so there was a resistance to that, but eventually we were able to change the name to the uh, Black Student Union, yeah, and, and that and then. Being at City College, uh, when I took up the commercial art, uh, I began to, this is my only basic training that I had, uh, professional, you know, academic training as an artist. And I developed my skills to the point where teachers would observe. They were probably somewhat liberal teacher who was coordinating a lot of stuff there. And he would observe my work. And initially he came to me and asked me, I could do some technical illustrations. So he must have been watching what I was doing 
and the assignments and how they were coming out because there was a teacher there who needed for his class some chromosome drawings of some tech. And he um, came and asked me, did I want your job? It was a paid job. And I said, yeah. You know, doing, uh, just doing the technical illustration, line, pen, and ink, and what have you, and developing my skills, and then observing what I had done from there and others as well. And there were other jobs that came up where it would ask me, did I want the job? And they paid money. You go, you take your portfolio down there to the locations. You got your job, you know. And so there was quite a few things that happened like that at that time. For example, I worked at a, here in San Francisco where the, the the, uh, the the main store of Macy's is downtown in San Francisco. Well, there used to be, on Gary, there used to be a place called Dorfman's, the same fine wine goblets and uh, uh, silverware. And they sent me down there, and they gave me the job after, after I showed my little portfolio. And I was doing the display signs for the windows and cutting and pasting with the uh, with the uh, with the coordinator of the public who 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 laid out their advertisements for the newspaper, uh, maybe twice a week or something like that for the main. main local daily newspaper. And so I began to do that, worked at a silk screen factory, then silk screen. So all those played into the, uh, my uh, the, uh, using those skills in, in the Black Panther Party, per se, when I got in. Because uh, without those uh, skills, I would have had no knowledge. If I would have took up fine art, I may have been a fine artist, but I would have had no knowledge of pre-press production of how to put a paper together, even the basic understanding, even though it still was on the job training when I got into the Black Panther Party. But I just <laughs> I just kind of felt, had a feel for it. And there was others in there who also had some some uh, uh, background in, 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 in production of, and technical skills and what have you in, in the graphic uh, art area, particularly Bobby Sale, who had engineering skills, you know, yeah. So that that all that played into the dynamics of um, my development, but in the Black Arts Movement, you know, dealing with the, being around the, the folks and brothers and sisters who were knowledgeable of what was going on and had a perspective or have a, had a, uh, a, a a Black conscious perspective and and a progressive perspective about what's going on in the world. And I'm just beginning to maybe not be like being a foreign language, but becoming involved. And as you evolve, you learn, you develop, you you you, you begin to begin to reinforce your, within yourself those those things you you're committed to because you 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 admire those who you're listening to, and so therefore you you try to uh, re- reference it or look uh, research it. Uh, Try to see what it, what what was going on with it at that time, you know, in 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 the black art movement. But you know, I, I was I wasn't uh, I wasn't a scholar. I, was, I was, it wasn't I was just a young brother, <laughs> you know, wanted to do something, wanted to make change, just like many others, you know, even like today, you know, people were frustrated by the murders and always being justified. You no, know, same thing as a youngster, you know, during that time, yeah. And so you. You, you referenced the Black Arts Movement, and I want to kind of double back because, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, in doing research for this interview, I'm so 
fascinated and interested in this very specific period of Black consciousness in the United States. So just to help readers out, or sorry, <laughs> listeners, unless I guess unless you're reading the transcript out, right? You mentioned the Black Arts Movement. So this is taking place approximately between like the years of 1965 and uh, and 1975, major figures are, you know, Amir Baraka, Audre Lorde, Dudley Randall, who has an incredible book, The Black Poets, um, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Maya Angelou, Nikki Giovanni, um, Sonia Sanchez, right? So that's where these names are kind of um, coalescing and gathering, along with our brother here, Emery Douglas. And, but for you in that moment, what were you hearing, right? Because this is actually a shift in identity, right? You mentioned earlier that, you know, the impetus was a shift from this colonial name of the Negro, right? Yeah. Into something that was self-determining, right? Which is one of the points of the Black Panther Party, right? The right to, for, for self-determination um, that was self-defined. What were you all defining by saying Black? And when for you did that switch happen? Well, during that time, I, I, you could say, I mean, you may have on a separate level, I always thought of it or felt that way uh, because of the fact that uh, you know that there was always racism and bigotry because of who you were as a person, the color of your skin and what have you. And uh, being around family, always talking about these issues in, in the context of uh just in the journalists, they were partiers. My family were partiers, you know. And they'd be talking about, and they talk about how they felt when they were in the, the brothers or uh, men, how they felt when they was in the military, you know, and they were over in Europe and Germany, and all how they had to confront it with the racism and stuff over there, you know, and, and what have you, you know. Uh, you know, you, and then, you know, had growing up when my mama, she used to work factories as a kid, scrub floors on her knees, all that, you know. That's, yeah, so you know, you so you 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 understand you you, you and in in the sense of the conversations and what were going on, and being communicating with brothers and sisters who now are trying to do something in the context of resistance against that is was a uh, uh, was something that was a that I was impacted by and, and felt and wanted to be a part of. Now, I was, you know, it was on, like, again, it was on the job training. It wasn't like I had 50 years of experience. So I, I'm, 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 I'm just here experience, learning as, as, we, as it go, making the contribution as I evolve and developing an, an understanding uh, as, I, as I grow being around in this movement, being around interconnected with 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 uh, with folks who were highly informed and, and enlightened by what mm. was going on, yeah. Mm. And so, you know, not to not to stick on this too long, but you know what I what I'm what I'm hearing is that there was a a movement across not only like locally in the San Francisco Bay Area, but across you really the nation for a re-identification, right? And a self-identification, like a pushback and a resistance to, but also in that re-identification is a new posturing, right? You know, I think it's something that obviously collectively we can do, but we can also individually do, right? We can change our name. We can declare ourselves outside of what we have 
been traditionally called, right? So that's something that we have. But there's also a directionality in the choosing of that new name. And with the identification of Black versus Negro outside of the resistance, that identity is something that, you know, contemporary people are inheritors of, right? I grew up with that term. There was mm-hmm. no shift mm-hmm. in that term. And so with you being at that place as that shift is happening now, what is this almost 50 years later or more, do you feel that the the desires that you all had in that name shift have manifested in the world 50 years later, 60 years later? Well, well again, self-pride. You know, because you define yourself as black or African, African-American, you know, it gives you a, a, a pride, of course. But it's still the challenge that you're confronted with. You still have to deal with those issues, no matter how you define yourself. How you define, you know, you still got to deal with, confront with the, re- the real world out there. Yeah. And with, with, the, with you know, that's the entrenched bigotry and racism, institutional, structural racism that, Existed, never changed, you know. It, but we, we, you know, as you, you're changing yourself to deal with those issues, to have a, whether it's, whether it's with, done with uh, consciously or unconsciously, or come to the point of being conscious about it. You you fight, you're resisting the old, you know, bigotry and what have you. Yeah. Mm. You know, I'm, and so. You know, you're you're the minister of culture of the, of the Black Panther Party. Yeah, in the context of the Black Panther Party, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, brother, like, what a title. Uh, I mean, one, to minister is to serve, right? Like, that is, that is what it means. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in what ways did you feel graphic arts really served the black community at this time? Well, well it, to give you the context again, and maybe this is something that you've researched, but uh, when I initially came into the party, three months after it started in 1967, uh, it had started October 1966. I came in late January, tr- making the transition from being in the Black Arts Movement into the Black Panther Party. And going fast forward, to April of that year, uh, Bobby was working on the first legal size sheet of paper, a uh, uh, newspaper, which was on a legal size sheet of paper. It was typed on a typewriter, and Bobby Sailor did the markers. And it was uh, about a young brother who had been murdered in Richmond named Denzel Dow. And they were taking up the case of that brother in relationship to the murder being justified. And it was decided that we would go to, during that time, they had connected with Eldridge Cleaver because he had got out of prison through, the, through when you had, when they brought, uh, when they were uh, planning to bring Sister Betty Shabazz to the Bay Area to honor her. Uh, during that time, it was a group of, of collective of act- people who put that together. And what happened is they couldn't get any response from Sister Betty Shabazz whether she would come or not. So what they did is they say, well, we know a brother who just got out of prison. We'll, we'll, and uh, he was a follower of Malcolm, and we'll, go see, he, and we'll go up to his lawyers where he's at to see if he'll write a letter on our behalf. 
and I, that, and I had went with them because they asked me to go up there. Because a week before that, one of the brothers who I knew who was working with them had asked me to come to that meeting when they were doing the planning meeting for Sister Betty Shabazz to do the poster for that event. And I had said I would agree to do it, simple poster of Brother Malcolm. So going back, fast forward again, when we went up to to where the brother was living, that was Elger Cleaver. And so Elger wrote the letter when they went up to the house to talk and to see if he would write the letter. He said he would agree to do it. He wrote the letter. That's when she came because she knew he was a follower of Malcolm in prison. Yeah. And so uh, she and that was uh, that was when 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 she came. And so fast fast forward. It was thereafter. That's when I joined the Black Panther Party. It was when when you and Bobby came to that meeting. I know I'm scattered all over the place. We're going to came to that meeting. <laughs> came to that meeting. Um, after the meeting, after you and Bobby came over and agreed to go do the security. After that meeting, I asked him how I could join. And that was my journey, beginning to catch the bus over there because I didn't have a car to Hewitt's house, show me around, neighborhood, go by Bobby's house. That was my involvement with the Black Panther Party. Now, going fast forward to when I talked about the first newspaper in April, and Elders Cleaver, they had connected with Elders. They had been all this time, between that time, they had been picking his mind, trying to get him to be the writer for the paper that they had the vision for. But because he was on parole, he was not, he was, was reluctant. But because he worked at a, a kind of progressive magazine called Ramparts Magazine, and they allowed him to cover the Panthers as a reporter for Ramparts Magazine. Thus, he was not in, in, in thus he was not in, in, in he was not a violation of his, his parole, you see. So that was how it worked out that he, Hugh and they would come around, connect with him, all that. And they would come to a place called the Black House in San Francisco. Culture events be downstairs. Elders lived upstairs. And Sonia Sanchez, Ed Bullens, all the different folks. Stokely, when they come through, with, there are a lot of culture events now. Marvin X, a whole lot. And so what happened was that uh, I was going over there. One Saturday, and Huey and Bobby and Elch were sitting downstairs. It was a Victorian house, two-story, but they were sitting downstairs. No, nothing was happening. And I, that's when I seen him working on that first Panther newspaper again. It still hadn't been finished quite. And he said, well, I, I said, I got materials that can help you improve it that I still have from City College because I didn't. I lived about a 45-minute walk to and from where the black house was. And he said, okay. And I said, I'm going to get it and come back. I came back with my materials. He said, well, we finished with this and now, but you seem to be committed because you've been hanging around in the whole bit. And uh, we going to start the paper. Not, and we, it's going to be a tabloid. But he said, we want you to be, you'll be the uh, revolutionary artist and you'll eventually become the minister of culture. It's going to be to tell our story from our perspective. It'd be like a double-edged sword. It can praise you on the one hand and criticize you on the other. It said that we want to have a lot of uh, post artwork. We want to have photographs. We want to have captions that 
have kind of big seniors can see when they look at it, they can read them, those kinds of things, and they can get you just because there was a, 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 a element, a large element of the community that wasn't a reading community that learned through observation and participation that they would get the gist of the story if they weren't going to read the long journal just by seeing the artwork or the photographs and the captions. So they're trying, they had this whole vision of about the paper itself. And so, and so that's how I began to begin involved with the paper. We didn't have even had a headquarters. We used to work out of Elders Cleaver studio apartment and we just, I, it was makeshift. I had to make up my own layout sheets that we would put and cut the paste and glue the, the type on. Sometimes it was done on the typewriter with the ball, some of it. Then we had friends who who we knew, allies, that would sometime uh, be able to do the galleys for us, the actual typing galleys, you know. And in the headline, we used that rub off, rub off type to make our headlines up and stuff in the beginning. Yeah. So everything was makeshift. It, it, it referred to more like a uh, like the Vietnamese and and the when they talked about them in the field and they had the mimeograph machines and they would mimeograph information and then they would pass it out saying telling the, the GIs that you're not our enemy the black GIs that you are not our enemies and what have you well it was a makeshift they could pick it up and take it anywhere so that was kind of like what we had then uh, uh, we could pick it up. And if we had uh, had an apartment that we still had to get the paper out, we could get some two horses, buy us one of those doors that you have a door, and put it on the two horses, and use that to maybe to cut and paste on, yeah, and use table light from saw, the saw horses. Yeah, yeah. Just just in case anybody's like, I'm sorry. Yeah, horses? yeah. Saw horses. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Yeah, ah, you're right. <laughs> <That's all good. laughs> yeah. So that was you know that was the, uh, that was the. Uh, and, you know, it was makeshift uh, until we got our central headquarters. So it was, on, and, it, and, and it, myself and Bobby, who had a little skills, would come over, cut and paste. Bobby Seals' brother, John Seal, would come over every night and help out, you know. So it was, it, it didn't come out, on, you know, so that was the development of the, of the graphic aspect of, of working on the paper. Until I got around, this, every now and then I was doing a real sketch or something that in, in, in interior of the paper. But uh, say about the third, about the fourth paper, fifth paper, I began to do artwork on the back covers. Uh, I always had the, 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 the uh, I always had the desire to design to give the uh, give it a magazine look more so. Than just a, re- a newspaper look uh, for the front cover of the newspaper. Yeah, so that came from my graphic skills and commercial art, where our work was always being uh, critiqued and criticized, and evaluated on on the des- design aspect of how things look. Yeah, so that played a, uh, that played a, a great into how I use those interpret those skills in the context of. Uh, the newspaper itself, yeah, covers it. Yeah. 
you you mentioned um, you say the black community at the time wasn't a reading community, but yeah, learned yeah. through observation uh, and participation. Yeah. So you all wanted to have a lot of images, but like in getting in getting down to like your actual process, what does your process of design? and designing look like in order to cope while producing work that addresses trauma, right? So meaning you as a Black identified individual who are live, who's living the actual experience that you're also trying to translate in the process of design. What is your design process like in that environment? Chaos. <laughs> 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 it, 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 like I said, we, you know, it was a process. Yeah, the, the process is that we had very limited money and had very limited skills on putting a production food paper together. The only thing that really was a plus was because I had took up production art, graphic design, as opposed to fine art. Therefore, I had been, I had had some experience, basic experience and know-how that I was able to bring into the party when that, when I was say, was going to put the paper out. So I had materials left over from City College when I went to City College. And I had materials left over because at the same time when I go to City College in the Black Arts Movement, and I used to do flyers and leaflets from time to time for announcements because I was sometimes doing stuff for Marvin X and different folks or Amiri Baraka and the flyers for announcements and stuff that they were doing. So I, I had those materials that I applied because the same principle was applied to putting a flyer or announcement together then was the same principle applied to putting out the newspaper. But just... You put it out in a, in, a, in a newspaper format, yeah. So, and, but yeah. I'm, I'm I'm also trying to tap into like your mentality at this time. So not oh, necessarily yeah. like the, the actual technicals of it, yeah. but like I am a black individual who's trying to speak to black individuals yeah, well, about yeah, like yeah. our shared experience. Well, what is well, that? You, that? Well, it's interconnected because I'm not the writer. We have we have Ellis just as one of the writers. Other people are making contributions. But we're doing it from a, a, a black African-American perspective. The paper was always dealing with international and national and news. We had a center section that dealt with national news, people of third world, people around the world. We were in solidarity with people struggling with Africa, Asia, and Latin America all, 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 all the time, you know, in, 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 in our paper. The news was on a, domestic, on a local level dealing with the quality of life issues in the paper, you know. That people were concerned with every day, you know, who were, couldn't, have, you know. So that's how we started the uh, the uh, the breakfast program, knowing and understanding the need that kid, uh, young kids, black kids going to school, uh, hungry because the family had the option to keep the roof over their head to pay the rent, or to pay the PG&E bill, or what have you. They, and they couldn't do all three uh, or any of them. It, it had to make a choice. So, it, and therefore, the kids may have had to go to school without breakfast. Going to school without breakfast means that they couldn't maybe couldn't focus on the lesson because it, 
you know, those things, and malnutrition, all those things play into that. And so you, 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 we say had showing people talking this with people in the community, and with the breakfast program. I remember Ruth Beckford, well-known dancer, with that back in the day. Uh, Huey Newton knew her well, and used to bring her by to see what we was what we when we were beginning to do on the newspaper over the elders, just showing her what we was doing and what have you. And she said, "Well, my minister uh, in Oakland." He might want to have a breakfast program out of his church. And sure enough, he did. And that became one of our initial breakfast programs out of of his church. Yeah, and his name was Father Earl Neal. He went on to to work with Desmond Tutu for many years in South Africa uh, thereafter. But yeah, that's where we had George Jackson's funeral with that, see, at his his, his church and what have you. So, you know, the, the, yeah, this is, these things connected and how they grew and how they developed was not just an isolation of us doing it. It, it was always bringing people around to see what we were doing. The how, you know, and there was a, they, a lot of people don't know that Huey and Bible, when it first started, had a, um, had a um, list of middle class blacks who they supported the Black Panther Party. That was, I, you had Ron Dellums before he came as congressman. But who the state assemblyman supported the Black Panther Party. He, the first black mayor acknowledged that he wouldn't have been elected. <laughs> it wouldn't have been for the Black Panther Party. You know, Lionel Wilson, yeah. So, you know, John George, who became the first black supervisor Alameda County, was our lawyer. Back in the day, before we was famous, before we were back in the day, you know, so that you know, so it wasn't like this. All this was in isolation. The, you know, it just so in in Oakland, he and them knew, and Bobby and them knew, and had to debates and discussions with other organizations and groups, and, and they had a whole vision. So it wasn't in, it, it, it did it didn't come just out of the clear blue sky just like that. It was interconnected to the debates and discussions, the agreements and disagreements and things that went on that played into the context of the vision of how things uh, unfolded within the Black Panther Party, and particularly uh, the work and the development. And the cultural aspect of it came out of, out of, the, out of the experience. You know, how people began to identify with the work. It wasn't like we had a... Uh, um, a position paper, or maybe had a position paper on art, but out of that art and the visual and seeing it, people identified. That's the cultural identity. It was a, it was a living culture. It, it was one that evolved. You you know you had people come in the party from all walks of life, and they brought a cultural style with them, a subculture style, you know, and how we talked and the language that we dealt with was totally different. And when you read the paper. It was on fire all the time, <laughs> you know. It had a had a language to it that didn't exist on on uh, 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 and, and just on a daily basis, like other newspapers did, you know. What was the language? What well, was the language a, it, like? It, it was it was it was a cultural language. It was it was a language that come out. Like, of how would you describe it? I, I was I I describe it as con- uh, developing a contemporary way of. 
doing things that was grassroots foundation that you could that even the sisters and brothers on the block could understand and communicate. Yeah, because you had because you had brothers and sisters who kept, some who came to the party couldn't read or write, who became inspired, became inspired and learned to read and write. You had that. You had brothers and coming sisters coming party. 15, 16, 17 years old, in the first phases of the party, when we had to give 10,000 bags of groceries away, had to be the ones to go procure the groceries, had to be the ones to figure out where we're going to put it at when we get frozen stuff until it's time, two or three days or four days a week, until it's time to put the bags together, had to be the ones to contribute to the fact of how are we going to give five or 10,000 bags of groceries in a way in an orderly fashion. Setting up the whole system, bagging them with community folks coming in. So this is developing the culture. It's not theoretical. It's the act, practical application of what you're doing. Out of that, maybe comes the language. Or, you know, out, or when we had political education classes and stuff. You know, and it was talking about, at one point. You want me, I'll wait for you. Go I, I'm, just, I'm just about to plug in my laptop. I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot to plug in my laptop. <laughs> okay. Now, where was I? You know, I'm 80 uh, years old, and I have laps. <laughs> come on. Brother, you look good. Let's talk about it. You look good. Uh, we were talking about um, the ways in which the culture um, was really informing the ways in which you all were operating yeah. from a graphic standpoint, yeah. from a language standpoint. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm also super interested in you, like, as an artist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, w- I mean, what are you looking at? I mean, you said, I think you said something like a position board, which I think in today's terms, we would probably say, like, a mood board. Board, mm-hmm. or like a board that kind of gave a visual gives a visual direction mm-hmm. uh, to what you're trying to do. So you know you have such a distinct style. You know with marker, bold lines. You know heroic graphic poses. Like what are you looking at? Like what artists mm-hmm. are you visually looking at? Like what are some oh, of yeah, your favorite yeah, artists? Yeah, that, you yeah, know like what's that? Yeah. It's where you get where because we are we we individually right like. In many ways, we are um, prisms, our filters mm-hmm. of the things that we absorb, right? And then it comes out in our own unique way. So, what what are you looking at? What have what were you looking at that then informed mm-hmm. the style yeah. that you identified as yourself? It, well, well, it came out of it was in the period of when there was the anti-war movement. It was in the period when you had the different liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America that we're in solidarity with. They used to make all these amazing posters that was inspired that I was inspired by, and particularly the ones come out of Vietnam and Cuba. The Cuban artists used to remix some of my repurpose and remix some of my art images, and turn them into amazing posters. They did about three or four of them like that, and people thought I was copying their art. (laughs) <laughs> back in the day, because the young people who used to go there to work in the the brigade, Vince Remos brigade, they would go to Cuba to help with the sugarcane, just crops and what have you, each year. And so they would see these posts and they thought I was copying their, their work. But uh, it was a guy named Lincoln Cushion who went there, who many years, he thought the same thing. Until they went there and seen the posters with my name on them that they were inspired by. Yeah. In spirit with, yeah. So, you know, that was the work that I was really inspired, the political revolutionary work. And they used to come out of China as well. Yeah. 
All those works, yeah. We, all that played a part into my spirit, you know, of, of the work that, that, that I was inspired by. Particularly, you know, as I would say, because you're an OSPAL, Organization of Solidarity with People from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Those were tricontinental posters out of Cuba. They they were always showing us posters that were solidarity with the African liberation movements and those leaders. And you would see those posters. And that would inform you as well. Wow, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I, I'm inspired by, you know. Yeah, that was the primary ones. I mean, it was their, their work was amazing. You, you, of course, I'm quite. I don't know if you've seen it, but you go online, you see them right now. Yeah, I remember I was talking to some of the uh, one group of brothers and sisters from Black Lives Matter movement a while back, and they knew nothing about it. And I told them about that, and they started looking online, helping all the world for them. And, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, it's so it's interesting. So you're you were really inspired by I mean, you know that and the movement they, now because yeah. as a youngster growing up, I stayed at my auntie's house a lot. She used to get this calendar each year. I think it cost a dollar fifty cents. She would pay for her calendar, and it had this black art on it. And I was intrigued. That was intrigued. I never knew. I was just intrigued by the art itself. And when I got into movement and I found out who it was, it was Charles White. Yeah, didn't didn't know then. You know, I'm just looking. I was just intrigued. But then when I seen the work and the movement and whatever, it was Charles White. Yeah. Wow! Wow! So you're, you know, things do not happen in vacuums, right? And so. Mm-hmm. You know, just to kind of take us back to this time, and then I want to bring us back present. Like, there are multiple social movements that are happening around the world at mm. this time, and yes. some that had happened prior to. And so, some of these posters that you're speaking about are actually, it sounds like, from other social movements that were happening around the world. But then yes. also knowing that the Black Panther Party was very much inspired by, you know, General Mao, um, Mao Zedong. And then also, it sounds like some of like this kind of Russian constructivism that was mm. coming out um, mm. from uh, Eastern Europe, right? And mm. those posters and the ways yeah. in which they were using this language mm. and this mm. graphic element mm. to really push social agendas forward and then mm. your and then you kind of push that through your own experience you mm. know in San Francisco and with these revolutionary ideas into a visual language mm-hmm. that then could com- be communicated to the very people that you were trying to reach mhm mhm yes mhm you being inspired by it means to be inspired with but not necessarily duplicate but to be inspired by it's being inspired with and as i evolved i Begin to be able to communicate, articulate it beyond just the visual. Art can, artists can have a knowing and be able to re- reflect it in the art, but at the same time, that's from a deeper inspirational spirit pr- perspective. But then develop the skills of communicating it as well. You know, yeah. One might come with the other, or it might come to. We might have it. The, I might have it at the same time. Or I may have a deeper knowing what I'm doing and be able to articulate it as as at a later date. <laughs> Maybe not right then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I, I want to come back to that because I love this idea of being in spirit with, but you know, I I do I do want to take advantage of the ability to be in 2023. 
mm-hmm. with an individual who not only lived this movement, right? You were at the beginning of it, but that movement had certain goals um, for Black life. It had a certain vision for Black life. And now here in 2023, in what ways do you feel that some of those were achieved? And the way, in what ways do you feel we still have some room to grow? Well, I think it achieved in the sense of uh, uh, overcoming the obstacles of colonization of the imagination in many ways, that, that people are resisting that, you know, as artists and creative folks, you know, in many ways, more so than in historical past, you could say, uh, on a broader scale context, you know. Uh, I, I, I see it in that context. I think that um, you have more young black and people of color who are referencing the, the work, who are are, uh, writing and discussing those works that when people read it, people of color and people of black people read it, it's coming from where they can, have, it, they know it's coming from them, from this, from that spirit, you know. So that's a whole nother dynamics, you know, it, in a way, you know, because we, we've had that, but it also always had came from, uh, uh, but to now you, it, what you got more young black people in these institutions and, and 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 developing a context for dealing with those issues, you, you know, it's, it makes it uh, a humongous impact today. It can't, you know, in many ways, yeah. And what and what and what do you feel? Maybe some spaces that still require some improvement, some hopes that you all had that still have yet to be achieved. Well, it's it's not about being the first. It's about it's about fairness and equality. It, you know, you you know, you cheat for, for being the first is a personal achievement. You know, being in this that's all these things are personal achievement. But you want transition, you want change, you want real change. You know, and we see uh, you see that that's that's an incremental thing that may happening, but in the context of things still staying the same. You see, but uh, so we have to it had to have alternative institutions to this. In some kind of way, uh, to begin to sh- lead by example, explain it so people can visually see that this is something that can help the collective spirit of everyone. You know, not just a uh, putting up a uh, uh, you know somebody having a foundation. You know, that's fine, but we need more than fi- just foundations. You know, we need we need. We need to. We got to. We got to figure how we how to, to for how to maintain foundations, how to sustain foundations. From you know, you have to have the vision, and that means having access to the technology of developing the technology. And we got the skills. It ain't the way we ain't got the skills. However, else can they over in Cuba? We got twenty. 1930 cars and it's still running. <laughs> you know what I mean? Same thing in Africa. Although, you know, wherever, you know, they, they develop with, I mean, all kinds of inventions that could be relevant to coming, you know, if the vision was there to see them in the context of, the, of, of helping 
solve the problem, things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It's a daily basis thing. Quality of life issues is very important. Very basic stuff is very important. Yeah. You mentioned something that I didn't quite, I think, consider as a goal of the Black Panther Party, which was the decolonization of one's imagination. Mm. And, and that's the ability. That, I, yeah. That's everything. That's all of it. Yeah. You can say that's everything. Resistance. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How would you the define... The language you talk about. Oh. Yeah, no. How would, how would you define Black imagination? Well, it, well, Black imagination would be that it's coming from a Black perspective. Which is... Well, it, well, I mean, which is from black people, people of color, yeah, contributing to the <laughs> to, to the narrative, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's I, that's what I would say. You know, maybe somebody else could inform me and enlighten me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason you know, I'm, 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 I'm being a little coy here. I mean, this is the Institute of Black mm-hmm. Imagination, um, and so you know, for us, you and know, a Black Imagination Insti- is, is not, is not. I don't think would say Black Imagination would be coming from uh, Black context, but not necessarily. And it, it, it speaks; it can be speak exclusively to about Black people. But it's one that can be informing and educating to a broader audience in that context as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's I not think- isolation. I wouldn't say it to be isolation. You know what I mean? If you do that, you know, you'd be the same thing as today. You know, it's got to be human, have a human quality to it, a loving quality, a respecting quality, but from, from the context of of who we who we are, how we feel, and how we talk about it, how we communicate it, you know. Yeah. And and so, you know, post post the, you know, existence of the Black Panther Party, like what happened with Embry Douglas, right? Like, you know, we're now in twenty twenty three. The Black Panther Party was um a, a while ago. What what did life look like for you? Post party, well, post party. And how are you navigating? Yeah, how are you navigating well, life? Yeah, well, you know, just the, the, uh, the. I mean, all you got Panthers who went on to life's journey in their their various ways, but they carried the spirit and the context of the Black Panther Party with them. How they navigate and do things in life's journey, in that context. For myself. Uh, I worked with the black press from about, I say, uh, 1985, 86, up until 2008, 2004, 2004, 2005, somewhere around in there. Yeah. In San Francisco with Dr. Collin the Sun Reporter, because they were allied, good friends of ours, and we sent people over to them to help them out when they needed help. And so when they knew the party was uh, was was on the demise, they contacted me after and wanted me to come over and work with them. And so I worked with the black press. Uh, and in and, and, and that also, uh, I had to deal with family issues. I had my mom and my stepfather looking elderly. So I had to come back over here where I'm in San Francisco to help them. Uh, 
for, for about 15 years or more, you know. But at the same time, I still kept my art stuff over in the corner, maybe in the living room or downstairs in the basement, played around with it all the time because there was always interest um, and like that. But say around uh, when the book Black Panther, The Revolution of Art of Henry Douglas came out in 2000, uh, around 2006, 2007, there had been a lot of interest. And so thereafter, I began to do a lot of traveling. Uh, at least three or four times a year, I was uh, uh, traveling. I, was, I went to uh, I went. To, I was invited to the Sydney Biennale in 2008, where I connected with uh, Aboriginal artists named Richard Bell and uh, uh, Gary Foley, well-known uh, activists over there. And they were surprised that they let me into the country because back in the day we couldn't go over there; and they couldn't come out. It was apartheid. They were a part of the apartheid triangle. They called it then between South Africa. Australia and uh, and and uh, and uh, New Zealand, and they used to pro yeah that was called the apartheid triangle, and what they used to do they used to disrupt the the, the rugby matches and all the stuff that went on between those those countries during that time yeah and plus there was a, in Auckland there was the, uh, the there was the Australian Panthers during that period as well in in, in Australia yeah. And then uh, I'm gonna come back to your question though. And then, but also <laughs> in New Zealand, there was the Polynesian Panthers, who became official chapter of the Black Panther Party in 1971. Yeah. And then you had the London Panthers. You had the uh, those who were inspired by the Panther called the Dalet Panthers in India. All this is documented. Even inside of Israel, you had Moroccans and stuff who were uh, Panthers. Yeah. In the Middle East. You had uh, Palestinians who were inspired by the Panthers. Yeah. So this was this symbolism had a great impact during it uh, all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but going to the Sydney Biennale, that first one, uh, we, we had, uh, I was there with Richard Bell and Gary Foley. Uh, it was very impactful, uh, you know, thing there. And uh, the, then I went to uh, was a young lady there who was a teacher who was there from New Zealand, who asked who knew of my work and wanted to know if I would come to New Zealand. And she connected it up, worked it out. And about a year later, um, she said they had set it up. But prior to that, it just so happens that one of the Polynesian financial founders had came to the Bay Area to visit a family that he was allowed to come out the country. And he contacted myself, and we showed him around and cut it up, and I told him I might be coming. And then I was, then I was able to come to New Zealand. I was invited there by Elam International School of Fine Arts to do an uh, artist-in-residency for 40, about 41 days. But it was so much interest in my coming that they had to scratch the artisan residency and I traveled to North and the South Island talking about the history of the artwork behind the artwork in the Black Panther Party. Not all, in major galleries but also in places where you had young, young folks who were psychologically and physically challenged by life's journey going everywhere. Yeah. And I was 
when I was met there, came when I my initial when I was met there at the airport. The uh, uh, the 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 uh, the uh, official Pacific Islanders, the uh, the uh, Maori, along with some of the Panthers, met me at the airport, and they took me official uh, took me to their marae, which is like their cultural place centers, and gave me the official welcoming to the land in their language, and the uh, Polynesian Panthers spoke on my behalf because I didn't speak Maori and what have you, yeah. So that what that was. Uh, the first visit. Then every year after that, I've been back there about, I've been four or five times to there. I've been to uh, done things, as you mentioned, which is, uh, in Chiapas, which is Zapatistas, which are Mayan. They're Mayan. And they uh, had, uh, Caleb Duarte was the artist who invited me and had the Mayan Women's Collectives did uh, five or six of my images interpreted in my, with Mayan language. And embroideries that were 20 by 30 inches in, in diameter with Mayan language in them and what have you. We went and did paintings and stuff out in the uh, Zapatista community because you understand Zapatistas went to war with the Mexican government in 2004, 2000, I think it was 294 because of NAFTA because they said that was devastating to them. And they and you know, and the whole bit. So they went. They had a war, real actual war. And then, but thereafter, they shifted and began to internalize and work within building their own uh, indigenous uh, cultures and what have you. And so we went to a lot of those those places. Went to uh, Colum- Bogota, Colombia. Had an exhibit in Bogota, Colombia. Also in Brazil and and in Palo in San San Paulo at a place called Sessi. In The Hague, been to Amsterdam, had exhibits in Amsterdam and Rotterdam four, four or five times, yeah. And uh, didn't realize till they took me to Rotterdam, kind of found out that's about 45 minutes from Amsterdam, and that's 60% of people of color. <laughs> didn't, was there. Initially, one time I was invited to a school called, uh, I forgot the name of the school, but it was a design school in uh, Amsterdam. And I told, I always explain that when I go to these places, I would like to see what's going on in the communities. I never want to go places just for the sake of going. I want to know what's happening with the people, the young people, and all those things. And so what happened is that... um, it was set up when I went to went there to go to do the uh, the uh, the presentation at the art design school, what have you. That set up me to meet these youngsters who do a lot of designing of T-shirts and all these kinds of things. A well-known uh, group of youngsters, but then went into the community to these housing projects, and it just so happens that uh, they were having a meeting, and the meeting was about their holiday, Christmas. Because what happened, I came there about, uh, their Christmas holiday, I think is on the 10th of December. And I got there around the November, the, the, uh, the 17th. And come, to, and come to find out that then, I didn't know it until then, maybe other people knew it, but Santa Claus helpers were blackface. All the helpers in the, blackface. I mean, they painted just like black folks. Yeah, yeah. And it's a tradition there. And uh, there's been a lot of protests came up about that. 
And they were protesting about it. And the brother named Quincy, who was the one who initiated the whole push forward around that, he was there. And they showed shit. The, uh, they sent out the uh, the YouTube video that at that time where he was wearing a T-shirt opposing it. And the police asked him why he had the T-shirt on, why he was there. And he, I think that he, he said something, and they tasered him. And, yeah, and jacked him up, all that. They even have toys and stuff with blackface. They said, oh, it's just called Santa Claus came. Here's one of the most liberal countries on the one hand. Got the most racist holiday on the other. But from that protest and those demonstrations, you had some of the colonizing islands, Suriname, stop celebrating the holiday because of that, because of enlightenment and educated. You know, people were thinking it was just young people, white, young whites, and others were thinking it was just okay. But when they began to see the protests and stuff like that, that began to shift it. Even though the, the white folks older who still think of it as okay, you know. But you got the younger generations. Yeah, and you got you got a diverse group of, if you've ever been there, I'm not sure, you got a diverse group of folks you got Arab, you got Muslims, you got all kinds of folks in, Af- in, in, in who live in, uh, in, you can say Holland or Amsterdam, whatever. Yeah. And so uh, that was impactful. And then going back and see how the community began to now, when they celebrate, they celebrate in a whole different way. They, they are not taking uh, ownership of, of, of how they will celebrate the holiday as opposed to how it was celebrated. Yeah. So you have those dynamics and meeting that, 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 you know, yeah. You know, as we kind of wind down, and thank you, thank you so much for for sharing that. As we wind down, um, I just have a couple of questions. One, mm-hmm. really personal, and then and then we'll wrap it up. But you mentioned earlier, you said um, to be inspired is to be in spirit. In spirit. Yes. Now, brother, you you are eighty. And you're looking good. What is your relationship to spirit? Spirit is an invisible aspect of ourselves, I would say. The invisible connection. You know, with sound, we think we touch sound, but we we just feel it. You know, we see something and we see how impactful it is, but we ain't we we know it's invisible aspect of ourselves. Yeah. We, until we manifest it. So it's the practice in, of manifesting it, freezing it, and making it into what we call uh, something we can taste, touch, you know. But at the same time, it's still an invisible aspect. It's being inspired by it, it's being spirit with. It's, it's how, it, how it touches you. Yeah. And what has been your relationship with spirit over the course of your life and career? Well, it's been growth and to understanding in that context. It's been all, it's about always trying to evolve, you know, and staying and staying, trying to stay grounded, you know. Uh, all those things is very important to me. Uh, I, I observe people and like that aura. I say, that's amazing aura, <laughs> you know. Uh, those things in spirit, that's what I would like to be, feel like, you know, want to be like. But then you go about it in the context of who you are. 
And maybe through some of the things that you do, it comes out like that. And you say, oh, that's, maybe that's what that was about. That's how it, you know, you grow, you develop, yeah. And being a better human being, yeah. But being, keep, keeping your convictions, too, at the same time. You have to keep your, 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 your principles and your convictions at the same time. You, you know, that you, you, you don't, if you don't, if you get, go out there and get caught up in the chaos and become chaotic, you know, but you, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's again, it's about learning. It's a, life is a life, is a learning process. And you can, and you know, you learn the lesson, you repeat the lesson until you learn them, you know, you know, until you go on to the next one. And so, what what is what is the key to longevity, brother? Let us know. You got Pardon? you got it. You there? What is the key to longevity? <laughs> well, you, you got for me. It's on the job training. You got to work at it. <laughs> Some people got it naturally, <laughs> but me I had to work at it. You know, you got you got to understand that there are scientific things out there that are practical that you can help you enhance your how you feel and the quality of life. All those things. You know, you got different. Things out there that have been proven to help you overcome certain issues that you may have. So, you know, diet, vitamin nutrients of a kind that may be relevant and helpful, all that plays into your, 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 yourself. And, you know, I used to, for myself, I used to think that uh, taking the, just the tablets, but I find that taking the liquid vitamins, 85% of that goes into your system. And then you not understand. Whereas only sixty-five percent of the others go in there less if you if you pills and stuff that you dissolve, you know. But then also you got understanding, you know. It's it's rest. It's all those things that you you go you can. I mean, every, there's so many variables that you have to. And once you understand it, and you start your journey. You may you may fall. You may you know you 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 gonna have sometimes you gonna have lapses and other stuff, but you. Can you continue forward? You know, I started the journey in 1980 as a vegetarian, you know, and coming into vegan and what have you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt for myself. I'm not saying that person person eat meat. I ain't hating them. I ain't on, you know, know, none of that. It's just that I, this is for me, how I want to feel in the context of, and I seen that it was relevant and worked for me. Yeah. So that's important too. Is for me is not to be critical of others, unless it's really the kinds of stuff that really knows that it's going to damage your body and your stuff. And if somebody asks me, then I, I'll speak to that. You know those kinds of things. You know, yeah. But I, you know, I don't, I don't disrespect nobody for because you know food was a we ate was survival food, even though it had side effects that we didn't realize and impact our way that how we did it, but it was survival food. And it was the and it was because of what we it was disastrous because of the way it was served, the way it was fixed, but not knowing the impact of the way maybe the, the kind the way it was was prepared. You see? Then, you know, as to now, you know, the kind of oils, those kinds of things, if you don't want to talk about it in the context of use. Hydrogenated oils, you know that all that kind of stuff. Yeah, those things. I'm just talking on a personal level, in that in that way, you know. Yeah, it's always about personal level. It's in the, yeah, yeah. 
when you come Amen. to food. Because, because people have survived forever off of certain food, you know, that I may not agree with, <laughs> you know, but I'm not going to tell them that that's, <laughs> that ain't what they should eat. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Brother Douglas, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, And before I ask my last question, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you personally for this incredible life of work that, you know, not only inspired people in your time, but continues to inspire people and inspire people all over the world. Um, And just the sheer tenacity uh, to take these very technical skills and use them in the service of us, right? Your people, our people. And for that, I am eternally grateful. So thank you so much. Um, My last question is, if you had everything at your behest, meaning like you could do whatever you want, what is the world you imagine for the future? Well, one, one that where people are living in peace and harmony. That's, I'm quite, that's what everybody wants, is, is peace and harmony. <laughs> Love and respect, yeah. Mutual respect. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the challenge. That's the ongoing effort that, needs, that has to be made in the context. But you have to overcome the obstacles. When they, when you do that, and when you say peace and respect and harmony, sometimes you have to go through the, uh, the, the horror chamber, the dark alleyways, the horror chambers, all the chaos and the madness to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. You see, it's not necessarily a smooth journey. Some may have it and make you feel that's the way it is. That can be inspiring, but if you don't understand all the chaos that goes in, then you 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 know you you you, you yourself can become very distraught and what have you, and, and then you know live I, for myself. I may feel good, but I'm not going to isolate myself from that which is bad that I'm trying to overshame, overcome. I say I don't want to deal with that. Of course, there may be time where I'm going to back off so I can get my bearings and stuff to continue forward. But I'm not going to say that, well, I'm, I'm going to isolate myself from that. I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, some, there are points in time when you may need to do that for a moment. But I'm not going to just do it in a way that I'm just going to give up and let that be and this be over here because there's an interconnection there that in trans, it's a struggle that's going on. It's like the internal struggle going on within ourselves all the time. That's what's that's what's going on in 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 the world itself. Yeah, brother, we are on the same page there. You know, as mm-hmm. above, so below, right? As yes. internal, it manifests externally as well, both individually mm-hmm. and collectively. Um, yes. the macro and the micro, the fractal yeah. nature of the universe. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Brother, this has been a pleasure. I will <laughs> return to you your afternoon. Thank you so much, so much for gracing us with your voice, your wisdom, your experience, the stories. Um, it is amazing to have it as a part of our archive now. So, brother, all power to the people. Thank you. All power to the people. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Peace, love, amazing. and respect. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Yo, I am still in awe. It's conversations like these with our elders that really show us that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I say, take some time, then go back and give this another listen. Emery literally lays out the framework of revolution. Ah, so good. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Let us know your thoughts on this episode over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And have you left us a review on Apple Podcasts? Hmm. Take two minutes and let us know what we're doing. Doing, doing, doing. Over, 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 over. Here, 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 here. We just want to hear from you. Where y'all at? Anybody catch the Karen Clark Sheard reference? Not churchy? Oh, okay. Anyway. We've got some exciting guests and we cannot wait to share them with you all. So stay tuned. Emory's story shows that although the fight for freedom is ongoing, tenacity and courage allows for so many others to find their freedom, even if just within themselves. Until next time, stay curious and keep dreaming.